Morning, church family. Rise and shine. Hey, we're just uh, one week away for the celebration for many, and I know many celebrate uh, this week, and, and it's good to see some faces. I went off to college, and they're here to visit the family and, and other activities, so it's good to, to see you all, and I hope to get to chat with you with the fellowship afterwards and uh, getting to hear what's going on in your college life and other things. So hopefully that uh, has an opportunity. If you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is to have you here uh, with us this morning here in person and also online. And uh, as we continue where we left off last week, uh, we're in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 12. Next week and the following week, unless the Lord raptures us out of here before then, which would be a good thing, it'd be totally fine, uh, we will be doing a Christmas message both at the 10 a.m., but also that evening, uh, more on the worshiping of, and music at that evening time. But come and we'll have a message there as well. And on New Year's, I'll have a more, a more of a prophecy, more of a future look of what's going on. Obviously, we're in pretty heavy in Revelation, but we'll probably touch in... Lord uh, hasn't fully given me the message yet, so I, I don't want to spill it yet. But, but that message during the morning and in the evening will be also very toward uh, prophecy and toward uh, the future. Amen? I'm forgetting something. It'll come back to memory, but let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you. What a blessing it is, Lord, that we can actually come and to sit and have our ears open and our hearts softened to receive what you have for us by your spirit. Lord, we want to learn and we want to grow and be consistent in walking in the spirit and in truth in our lives throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the seasons, the different seasons of our lives, Lord. The highs, the lows, we need you more and more each and every day. May we have desires in our hearts to want more of you and less of us and less of this world and less of these things that can can crowd our life, Lord. We want more of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. We will be picking back up where we left off on verse 7. We will take all verses from 7 to 17, Lord willing. I titled it, Heavenly War Spills to Earth. There's two sections in the remaining of chapter 12. We saw a picture of an invisible war that takes place that many of us do not even think about and understand until you're reading the scripture and you see in the scripture of what takes place between good and evil between the demonic force and God's force. And things that do affect our lives physically here now on this earth. 
The things that we see are going on, the darkness that we seems to be just coming across the lands and the craziness and the confusion and the twistedness of what was used to be so right and normal and good is now twisted like it's not normal, it's not good, it's not, it's just wrong will be right and right will be wrong. The Bible warned us in the end times we would see these kinds of things going on. Even Christians haven't made the connection. We just think, oh, they're just a fringe, a fringe kind of a group out there. It's a, it's a small group. They're out of their minds. No, no, you don't, understand, you don't fully understand, my brothers and sisters. When you see these things, take note. This is what the scripture talks about. The days, what it will look like before Jesus comes and takes us, the the body of Christ, his bride, to heaven. The rapture happens. So we need to be aware of these things. And we saw some characters in the scripture about the woman and the child and the dragon. We saw that in the first six verses. The woman being Israel. The child being Jesus. The dragon being Satan. Go back and read and listen to the teaching if you're not familiar. I'll try to blend that in as we go through this so you're not lost if you're just coming and picking us back up here. But go back, I encourage you, because you don't want to miss. And we'll try to keep everything uh, moving in a direction so that we have time here for uh, the remaining of this chapter. We will see the second two parts of chapter 12. The first part is John sees the war in heaven played out. We see that in verses that uh, 7 through, uh, through 12. And then 13 through 17, we see that war now spilling over into back to earth. And John sees the woman, Israel, must rush to the desert. And we will see that in verses 13 through 17. But here's what we see here in verse 7 through 8 here of the conflict of a better picture and understanding of what this war is, the conflict that's taking place in heaven. We see it in verse 7 here. It says, and war broke out in heaven. Who's the war between? Well, we see the first characters, Michael, the archangel, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought. So not only were these, these two, Michael and Satan, the devil, but they also are leaders over angels who were with them. That was, their, that was their army with them. They were all in conflict spiritually and they were physically. Was it is a spiritual war or was it a physical war? We don't really know. Because there's no details. It doesn't have, like sometimes we see in the movies, all the, the swords are going back and forth. And, you know, our, the Michael Archangel throwing us, you know, a spear of lightning. And, you know, we kind of can create things for movies that people try to depict. But we don't have any of that detail. We just know there was a war broke out. And typically when there's a war, there's weapons. And it's never good. We don't have the de details of what happened to that. Except for one thing, and we will read this here in a minute. But notice, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. The dragon and his angels did not prevail, the demonic forces, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. It's a nice way of saying they got kicked out. Take, take you and your demonic force and get out of here. 
It just go back, you're going to earth. And, he, and God kicks them out of heaven. Now, when you think about that, when you read that, there should be questions starting to come in your mind regarding that. And we'll try to touch on some of those questions that people have. But here we are at the three and a half year point, the midpoint of the seven year period of tribulation. We're hitting the great tribulation the last three and a half years. And we find at this midpoint of the great tribulation, God will turn the tide against Satan. First in heaven, then on earth. A battle will take place that will deny Satan access to heaven no longer. Ah, should trigger a question in your mind. You mean Satan actually had access to heaven? Yes. Until this point in the great tribulation, everything changes. And now he will no longer, him and his demonic forces will no longer ever for eternity have access to heaven. That's it. And so here, these Michael and his angels, some individuals and groups, such as the Seventh-day Adventist or Jehovah Witnesses, insist that Michael is actually Jesus, but he is not. He's wrong on every single point. Let me touch on those very quickly. Because some say Michael was, must be Jesus because of his having angels. That doesn't make him Jesus. Because we see here in the scripture that Satan has his own one-third of the angels that went with them. Remember, his tail took out the one-third as we continue to walk through this. But those fallen angels followed him. They, they rebelled against God along with Satan. So if he's got angels and, and those who are following him, so does Michael, we read right here, is going to have his own, the other two-thirds. We have more good than bad. Don't forget that. will be also with there. So that, that, so that justification cannot be justified just because they have angels is why um, Michael is Jesus. That's not, that's not it. Now some believe that he's Jesus. Why? Because his name means one like God. But you have to understand that meaning. One like God. He wasn't God. He was one like God. So if, they, if this was Jesus, it, it would go against the argument of his deity because his name is one like God. No, no, Jesus is God. So that's why Michael is not Jesus, because Jesus is God. Now some would say that Jesus, Michael is Jesus because he is called the, uh, the archangel in Jude 9 which means leader or prince among the angels. And they, and they will say only Jesus is a leader of the angels. But that's not true. Why? Because we go back to Daniel chapter 10, and chapter 10, verses 13, 20, and 21. Those are the three references. Michael is one angelic prince among others, which means there was more than maybe one archangel. We see that also in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So you can't use that language in a way to try to justify that Michael is Jesus. 
Now some will say that even Paul makes it very clear because Paul says at the rapture, the Lord will call his people with the voice of an archangel in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And automatically say that must be Jesus calling us. No, no, it doesn't mean that. It means Jesus can use an angel to do his calling for him to come. Just as much as God can use a trumpet to sound out a call without being a trumpet. So be very careful in trying to use the words in the scriptures to justify some kind of agenda in your mind. Which is what false, teaching, uh, false teachers or false religions do. They will twist the scripture just so slightly and not keep it in context and supported by the scripture. And Jude 9 says that Michael would not rebuke or accuse Satan of, of, any of, of, of anything because he didn't have the authority. Everything that Michael does is based on the authority of Jesus giving him to do that work. That's when he says, the Lord rebuke you. Which is telling us right in the scripture that Michael did not have the authority at all like Jesus who is God. And because Michael isn't Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who can rebuke Satan and his demons, and he's the only one that has the authority. We see that in Matthew 17, 18. Also in Mark and also in Luke, references to show that. So here, Michael and his angels are fighting against Satan and his angels. And as they go into this battle, this dramatic scene of battles between the good angels and bad angels. Those who were faithful and obedient angels. Against those who were fallen and rebellious angels. There's nothing new. It happens in the angelic world in heaven world but it also happens here on this planet between good people and bad people those who have given their life and they're they're not rebellious against god they're faithful people for god will always be at odds with people who want to rebel against god and are not faithful against god why do you think any kind of conflict within a family happens is because there's something not right because if everyone was faithfully loving and, and not rebellious, but faithfully and, and, and serving and, and, and not rebellious, there would be love and unity within that relationships. So something's not right. And certainly we can see that. So what, who fights in this battle? Obviously the battle is between, uh, is between equals. Because Satan and Michael would be equals. Satan is not equal with God in any form or fashion. The dragon represents Satan. We see that very clearly. And Satan is not a counterpart of God. God has no counterpart. If anyone, Satan is a counterpart of Michael who seemed to be the chief angels that are opposite. And they were probably... You know, serving God, this, in one, it appears in the scriptures that Satan was probably the uh, worship leader. And, it, and again, it had influence over one third of the angels and brought them with them. But why are they battling in heaven right now? 
Well, we see that the last time they had a battle in the scripture was Jude 9, because Satan knew that God was going to use the body of Moses, and Satan wanted the body of Moses, and Michael was sent by God to protect the body of Moses, because we, I believe, and I'm sure you believe, that God is going to use the body of Moses as one of the two witnesses on the streets of Jerusalem that we've already studied. Now, you may have a different perspective. I'm sure you'll come full circle around to, to see it uh, that way. But ponder on that. So now we see the next part in the scripture where they're having another moment of intense fellowship. No, not fellowship, absolute war. And in this time, it's coming to the end because we see the end is coming here at the end of the tribulation. And at those last three and a half years, now God says, finally, I've had enough with you. Get out of here. Because I am soon, at the end of those three and a half years, total of seven, I'm coming back to rule and reign on this earth that you've messed up. Are you, is that, is that an Amen. That God has a plan that he is coming back and Satan and his demonic forces will no longer have the influence that they do today. Now this, this battle was taking place up in, in heaven. We see another reference, Daniel 12 verse 1. It says, at the time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands at watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. They had the promise in the Old Testament that God was going to take care of these situations eventually. They had faith to believe that what God said was going to happen in the future. We also have that same faith. We see in the scripture what God is projecting out in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And as we take a look and ponder on how this fight, this battle is taking place, we don't know again if it's spiritual or physical, but we do know. We know this is a real fight, but it is a material or spiritual battle we don't know, but it doesn't matter because it does have an impact. It is still war. Many times people say, physically, I'm not having a problem, but man, it just seems like I'm attacked spiritually constantly. I can't get my mind focused on God, and every time I try, it just comes attacks me. Every time I open up the Word and tries to read, I'm so interested, ready to go to read, and all of a sudden, boom, I am just... I'm out like a light. Or I can't get my all everything I have to do around the house and work and all these things. I, I want to just read and all of a sudden, boom, the attack comes on. Why? Because Satan and the demonic forces don't want you to go to God. He doesn't want you to hear from God. Why do you think the distractions are there? Why do you think the confusion can come? Because out of the blue, these things can happen and attack you and me when we're seeking after God in our life. Desperately needing his help and desperately needing to have answers. And we'll be attacked. It's interesting. Our battle with Satan and his demons is spiritual fought on the battleground of truth and deception and of fear and of faith. We see that in Ephesians 6, 12. 
People say, oh, what's this spiritual warfare and what's this whole thing? Just go back and read the scripture. Fear is not of the Lord. Faith is of the Lord. Truth is of the Lord, not deception. So when you see these things and these differences happening, you know you're in a spiritual warfare. You better get down to your knees and you better be asking God to help and protect you and your family when there's all this deception and this lack of truth of God's truth pouring into your life or into the situation. And if it's a material attack against us as a believer, Satan as demons were disarmed at the cross. And we must remember this truth in Colossians 2.15. So many times people get wrapped up and say, oh, the demons just made me do it. No, the demon didn't make you do it as a believer. He was disarmed. He has no power over you. All your bondage, all your chains, all your weights, and all these things have, been, have set you free when you gave your life to Jesus. Are you with me? Because that's very important as we continue in the, in the discussion here and the teachings today. You must get this truth solidly down. That you're a free person in Christ. You've been set free. So any bondage or any, you have a spirit of this or a spirit of that or some of the bad teaching that's out there, you've got to get that purged out of your mind. Because if you're a born again believer, you have been set free. You've been forgiven. Regardless of how you feel at that moment. But we see in these verses, there's no, more, there's, no, there's no place for you here, Satan, in your, in your demonic forces. You're out of here. So we're here. This reminds us of where we are in the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week prophecy. We're at that midpoint right here in that prophecy, that 70th week. Satan does not have access to heaven where he accuses God's people before the throne. You and I right now, Satan is, pops right up there and accuses you and I as believers, as children of God, that, oh, look at him. He says he's, a, he's, he's, he's for you, God, but that, you know he's not really for you. Look, did you hear what came out of his mouth? Do you see how he's treating his wife? And you see this thing, and he's always accusing us in front of God. Ask Job. And Jesus sits there and says, Father, I, I died for that. Father, I died for that in Corey's life right there. I am working, sovereignly working in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is working in him. He, eventually, that is, that is gonna, no longer going to be of him. And we have an intercessor. We have an, a, a, someone who advocates for us in heaven. We also have an accuser. Someone who's trying to come against us. And again, we find that happening. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness of this world. And we must fight against these things because these are real. 
And we must be praying and we must be seeking the Lord and we must be in his word and, and live in truth. Because if we do not do these things, you're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to deal with the demonic forces that want to take you out. And lead you down paths to destroy you. Yes, you're saved, you have eternal life. But he wants to destroy your life so that you're ineffective to reach anyone else's life. He wants to oppress you in such a way and depress you in such a way that you will just curl up and say nothing and do nothing. Once you're a child of God. Notice here. In verse. Verse 9. So the dragon. Was cast out. That serpent of old. Called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world. He has cast to the earth. And his angels. Were cast out with him. So we see interesting. Many names for the same person here. John sees Satan cast out of heaven into the earth. For the last final three and a half years of the tribulation before Jesus' return with you and me. To claim the earth back to himself. Evidently, we see this is also mentioned of Jesus in Luke 10, 18, of the vision that was talking about of the casting out of Satan out of, out of heaven. That means that last three and a half years, we're in heaven right now. We've been raptured. We're in heaven. But for those who become believers during that seven-year period of tribulation and survive and do not die, they have an understanding of the scripture that they're not, Satan's not going up to accuse them any longer because he's under control. But the woe is when we see this is now Satan is actually only on earth. So you can imagine Satan is, and his demonic forces are only on earth the last three and a half years of the tribulation. It is going to be hell on earth for those who are believers in the Jewish nation, living on this earth these last three and a half years. So you thought the first three and a half years was bad. Many, were, many died. But those who survive are going to be living on demonic forces like we never even can imagine will be set loose. So the dragon is cast out. And it's this single verse uses many different titles of our spiritual enemy. Notice them. Dragon, serpent of old, the devil, Satan, and he who deceives the whole world. Satan's job is to deceive the whole world. How does he deceive or why does he deceive? He'll use whatever it takes to cause you and I to walk away from God. To not listen to God. To not pursue God. He will do whatever it takes to make sure you and I don't do that. And it's these titles that describes Satan as a vicious, an accuser, an adversary, and a deceiver. That is what you, and you and I are who we're dealing with when we talk about Satan. But he's cast out. The Bible describes four different falls of, 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 of Satan. I call it that spiraling down. 
That happens to all of us. If we walk away from God, you will start spiraling down. We see four different falls for Satan. Let me give you those to you for you to go back and reading for your reading pleasure. The first spiral down fall took place when he went from a glorified kind of state in heaven. He was in heaven, a worship leader, serving God, until then he chose to want to be God and like God and be, do his own thing. That caused him going from a glorified to a worldly, profane, secular mindset that we see in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 16. The second fall is what we see here in our scripture today in Revelation 12. From having access to heaven to being restricted to the earth only. That's his second fall. We'll see. Again, we see him having access in Job and in 1 Kings 22, Ezekiel 3.1, for those who are taking notes. <laughs> Try to slow down. <laughs> to now in Revelation, he's, he's out of here. The third fall is from the earth to the bondage of the bottomless pit for a thousand years that we will study in Revelation chapter 20. And the final fall will be from the pit to the be let loose. We'll talk about it when we get there, so don't ask me now. Why God would let him out of the bottomless pit? We'll explain there's a very specific purpose but it's only temporary. And then he and all the demonic forces and all non-believers will be placed into the lake of uh, fire, Gehenna. And we will see that in Revelation 20, also noted in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. What is the lake of fire, the Gehenna? Let me answer that because most people, yes, hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna, out, outer darkness are all the same terms describing the final destination of Satan and the demonic forces and those who have rejected Christ. Now, I know, I, I, I pray, there's no one in this room or listening right now who've chosen to reject Jesus. I, I pray, no one here you heard Mark say at the very end, the gospel message, those who believe. In the final work of what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. To die for the sin of the world. And anyone who will believe in him will have everlasting life. Will be forgiven and have everlasting life. Because if you reject that, that good news, the gospel message. Your destination, ultimately, you know where you're going to be in the future. And that would be the lake of fire, the Gehenna. Hell. Outer darkness. Separated from God and any goodness for the eternity. I, that is not a scare tactic. That is just reality. Read the scripture of the truth. So you don't ever say, because it won't work. When you stand, when you go to heaven and you kneel before God, because every knee will bow before Jesus, you can't say, I didn't know. 
you know. You truly, truly know. Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, that, is it the first fall, the second fall, when he's referring to when he's moving from being in heaven and going into the worldly scene? It, it, again, it's very a prophetic book acknowledging this fall and at this midpoint of the seven-year period of tribulation, and this is setting up for the final, final steps of, of Jesus' uh, prophetic plan. All of them, Satan, all the demonic forces are, are sent out. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his, of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our, good, our, before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and, their, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and in the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Lots of things in these three verses. First of all, I heard a loud voice saying, we don't know who that loud voice is saying. Maybe it was you. Maybe it's you in heaven right there making that loud noise. Maybe it was me. Maybe it was one of us sitting there saying those words. I hope it's me. I hope it's one of you. Because I'll be rejoicing. I know that person. Yeah. They're going to claim now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. They have overcame. They overcame them. And we see there in verse 11 how they overcame him. And we're going to talk about that here. Because right now, we don't know who this loud voice is, but it is not God and it's not Jesus it is, it, is, it is not it is one of his angels. It is someone who represents the redeemed humanity in, in, hev in heaven at that time. The rapture of the church has happened. Someone in that redeemed humanity, not an angel, not God, because a voice speaks of the accuser of our brethren, which represents you and I. One of us are saying these words in heaven. I'm sure it's Tom. I just know it's Tom. Because he's a quiet Tom today, but in heaven, I bet you he's going to be singing the loudest and saying these words. I just knew it this, this week when I was pondering on who it could be. <laughs> he's going to get me later. Satan's work of accusing only ends here. When he is cast out from his, his access to heaven and no longer has access, today we have and need an intercessor and an advocate, Jesus, for us because uh, Satan's always coming against us. 
We see that in Hebrews 7, 25. 1 John 2, 1. This is real. This is what happens. But we see here something that's very, very important to us in verse 11, that he that they overcame him, Satan, they being who? The brethren overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. There are three keys to overcoming spiritual attacks from Satan. Are you ready? A circle verse 11. Highlight it with your little highlighter. Here's the secret to overcoming the attacks that come to you and me spiritually. First one, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The blood overcomes Satan's accusations against you and me. Those accusations mean nothing against us. Why? Because Jesus already has paid the penalty of our sins deserved. It's like someone making an accusation against me and you're like, okay, come examine my life. Open it up. Look at it. I am as white as snow. Because his blood has washed you and me as believers as white as snow. You want a legal terms? Open up the books. Go to the legals. Get your lawyers. Open it up. Look at my record. And it is what? Clean. Hello? So when you're being accused and there's little things starting to pop into your head or someone Satan uses to come and accuses you, you immediately said, I'm forgiven. I have nothing. Your, your accusation means nothing. They don't affect me at all because of Jesus. He saved me and he's forgiven me. So get behind me, Satan. So the next time someone says to you and accuses you of something, just say, get behind me, Satan. Because his blood has washed me as white as snow, cleansed me. I'm forgiven. I don't know who you're talking to. Do you, do you, do you believe that, my brothers and sisters? Do you have that settled in your mind? You will not be affected by the accusations and spiritual attacks that come against you in whatever form and however he uses that. Because we may even have, even the accusations that he's saying, we could have had worse. <laughs> he might have said, oh, did you hear that? He said he loved someone. But do you see how he's, what his tone of words were? Man, I'm glad he's only talking about that. Some of the worst things. I'm glad he didn't mention some of the worst things. We are still made righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross. You're made righteous because of his work, not yours, not mine. Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, Hebrews 9.14. Want a couple more? Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. One in uh, John chapter 12, somewhere at the end of 12, I think it's 31, verse 31. Look it up today. Just keep reading 12. 
<laughs> we got the, I got the chapter. I think 31 might be questionable, but I think it is. It's important we do not regard the blood of Jesus as some superstitious thing that can happen in some religious circles. It's not a, ma a matter of, I've got Jesus' blood. It's like a, some magical potion or some lotion or something you put on. And it's not literal blood of Jesus either. That's how crazy some religious people can get. Oh, I've had the blood of Jesus on me. I almost like talk like it's real, like it's, it's literal blood that was placed on them. Oh, try this. Oh, it'll remind you of putting on the blood of Jesus and you'll be cleansed. It gets so crazy out there in the religious circles. If it was literally blood, who would be the most cleansed and forgiven and washed as white as possible? It would be the Roman executors. Because when they killed and were flogging him, the blood was all over them. They would have been the first ones to be saved, wouldn't they? But I also ponder on that and I said, how sad if it was, was real blood that cleansed you and forgiven you. It would be so limited because it would be only those who were actually right there at that moment flogging him that would have gotten saved. What about you and I? We weren't there. See, the blood speaks to us. How? Of the real and physical death of Jesus Christ in our place. That's what the blood represents. Jesus died, literally died, for our sins on that cross. It was on our behalf before God. He went there and said, I am going to take Corey's place and I am the one who's going to go to the cross and die in front of God for his sins. It'll be my blood. It's a, this, it's a literal death in a, in a literal place and with a literal judgment he bore on, for my life, on my behalf. Which allows me to be saved. See, by the blood, it emphasizes the death of Christ, of the death of Jesus. He did not only suffer, he died. Why? Because he is the lamb that needed to die to be the sacrifice of the lamb. Emphasizes the substitution or substitutionary work of his death. Why? Because the Passover lamb died as a substitute for others. And it was demonstrated coming out of Exodus. We talked about this. I think it was Thursday. Yeah, Thursday at the men's study. The blood of Jesus are, is cleanses a troubled conscience that we have. Because your conscience is troubled because of the sin and the shame and the guilt in your life if you haven't been cleansed. You're going squirrely because you're not saved. For some of you. Because your conscience is so guilt-ridden, it's tearing you up. But if you are born again, you need to not let your conscience dwell on the things that have been cleansed and taken care of. 
So not only does the blood of Christ heal our troubled conscience, because we know by his death our sin is atoned or paid for, we see that clearly noted in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. But we also, this, his blood works first because his victory is our victory. When he went to the cross, he victory, he overcame death, and that's our victory. We're identified with him. We must remember that it, 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 it works because this blood works because the work of Jesus at the cross for us is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for you and I. We see that clearly noted in Romans 5.8. The blood works because the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute reveals the true nature of sin. It shows us how wicked sin is and that should cause you and I to avoid sin. It should cause us to avoid sin. Why? Because he loves you and I so much that he died for that wickedness in our lives that out of our response of our love for him for doing that, we will avoid sin. We will not desire anything that doesn't please God. That's what should drive us every day. Does that please God? No. I know touchy. Just don't touch it. Don't even ponder on it. Just, just walk away from it. Even as, as tempting as it looks like and pleasing, because Satan's right there. Oh, it's pleasurable. Oh, it's good. It's right. Get ahead. It's okay. No, no, no. When you know the word and it says no touchy, you know touchy. Why? Because it's a response of love for who he's already shown us love by dying on the cross for us. God has purchased us. Do you know that, my brothers and sisters? When we went to the cross, he purchased our lives. He gets to say what he wants to do in our lives. He has a plan, a purpose, and it's always what? Good. Always good. The second thing that we can do to overcome Satan is they overcame him by the word of their testimony. Your testimony and my testimony. The word of the testimony overcomes Satan's deception. Knowing and remembering the work of God in your life and my life protects you and I against Satan's deceptions. As faithful witnesses, they, we, you, I, have a testimony to bear and to be witnesses to all around us. Because we know what they have seen and heard, experienced from God. You can't ignore what God has done in your life. And with that testimony, you can stand strong. So when the deceptions come, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I know what God has done in my life. I know how I used to think I don't do that anymore. I used to live a certain way. I don't do that anymore. I used to have no problem doing those things over there. I now I don't do those. I have no desires of those things. What things came out of my mouth was wicked and, and the foul mouth. It's, God has taken care of you. You have no idea what I used to look like. The depths of selfishness before, before Christ, you have no idea. 
See, you have a testimony. You, whatever that testimony is, you can stand firm what God has done in your life. But if you're sitting there today and you're like, um, I still do all the things I used to do and I don't have a problem cheating, stealing, and whatever, then I would question your salvation. I'd question your salvation. Why? Because there's no fruit. There's nothing of a changed life. When you get saved, you're changed. You're not completely 100%. You're wiped clean, but there's still residual behaviors and thought processes that need to be worked out, but you no longer have those desires. You're trying to run fast enough to get away from them. Before you used to run to them. Now you're running away from them. And it seems like they catch up to you sometimes. But you, you're trying to avoid them now. There used to be no conviction. Now there's conviction. Then you're saved. Because you've got the Spirit inside you convicting you. Very important. The testimony. But the testimony has to be a consistent testimony, my brothers and sisters. The consistent testimony is a powerful tool to overcome Satan. But if you're wishy-washy, you're walking with the Lord for a while, and then you go back to the world like a dog to its vomit, and then you come back, oh, i got to get back to the Lord. And you got, if it's not consistent, then there's not a really good testimony yet of those people watching your life that you truly are what you say you are as a believer. I'm just saying get consistent. Just get consistent. And let God use your life to be a bright light and salt for this very dead world. Dark, dead world. The third thing we need to do is to overcome him is they did not love their lives to the death. What does that mean? They weren't selfish. They were not unconditional love for themselves to the depths of I want to do whatever I want to do and live however I want to live. You want to overcome the, 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 any kind of accusations and the same? Stop fulfilling your life however you want to. Die of self and live for Christ and do what he is asking you to do. You want to overcome some of the problems you're having? Die of self. Because the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you're going to become. And Satan's going to have all kinds of fiery little darts to be able to send your way because of the decisions you make. We want to overcome Satan's violence against you? Don't cling and hold on to these earthly lives, these things of this material world. then the, Satan won't have anything to use against you. If, they, if we believe, truly believe, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Oh, once you grow and mature, my brother and sister, and if you keep showing up, you're going to grow and mature to a point where you will say to live is Christ and to die of self is gain. It's so important because we have this selfish tendency to love ourselves so much that we think we can live however we want to live. In Matthew 16, 
Verses 24 and 25 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, what? Find it. You'll find a life finally. And we see here of these verses, it says, therefore, and there's a transition, therefore rejoice. Satan's out of there. Demonic forces are out of heaven. Therefore rejoice, O heaven. But he also then said, woe. Woe to the inhabitants. It's going to hurt. Woe, it's going to hurt. Because now Satan is absolutely like a dog, been wounded and cornered, and he's going to come out fighting pretty hard. And he'll ravage anyone who's in his sight. Why? Because the scripture tells us he knows that he has a short time. Short time for what? To have rain to even do anything against us and to try to destroy us. He is soon, he knows without a doubt, he is going to be locked up in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Him and his demonic forces, and not have any say and touch of your life and my life. And so with that, he's going to take down as many people as he can to hell with him. And he does it in two ways keeps people in darkness so they don't ever come to Christ or to come against you who is of Christ and keep you so your light under a basket and keep you so distracted that you will never be of any value of sharing the good news of the gospel and encouraging people they're just you're just going to bury you in distractions now the last part here in verses 13 through 17, we see this conflict now on earth. The war is on earth now. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So we see here, like I said, here comes Satan, here comes his forces, and they're going to do nothing but go what? Persecute, come against Israel God's people and any believer who has given their life to Christ and still alive. That's all they're going to focus in on is to persecute. Look to destroy. For the last three and a half years of that tribulation. So it's limited. God says you're not going to have that much power. For only for a short period of time. Now, when you think about this, why is Satan attacking the Jewish people? Because he they represent God. They're God's chosen people. Anyone who goes against the Jewish people, you're going down. You'll go down as an individual, you'll go down as a nation, you're going down. You're going to go down. Why do you think anti-Semitism is as a rise right now across what we see today? 
Because in the end times, things are going to be much more intense against the Jewish people and believers. We're going to be persecuted more apt to as a follower of Jesus, true follower of Jesus, than any other time. It's in these last these years coming into the seven-year period of tribulation. Then we get raptured out, but those who get saved during those seven years will be highly persecuted. But notice here, now when the dragon saw, he is now realized he's no longer of the freedom. He's going to persecute Israel. Why? Because they're the ones that gave birth to Jesus. And they've been trying, we talked about last week, every start from the very beginning of Adam and Eve, they've been trying to stop Jesus from coming, stop Jesus from going to the cross, now stop Jesus from returning. It doesn't stop. So he's going to do whatever it takes to take out the nation of Israel because the scripture tells us that the, the, the Jews are going to welcome him back in his return, his second return. And if there is no Jewish nation to welcome him back, it's trying to stop him in his second return. How foolish it is for Satan to think he can, he's going to win. Isn't it? Even if it's very clear for us, because we have the scripture, he understands. But he still believes he could still stop God doing what he wants to do. Just like us, we sometimes think we can stop God for doing what he wants to do. But he says here, as a, as a, as a, as a symbol, that God is going to give the, Israel, the woman, two wings of, great, of a great eagle. Now, some people who like to always have to have to justify, God says that, oh, it must be in the early days. Oh, it's got to be the United States Air Force with those big wings. They're going to go fly in, put them all on the plane. They're going to lift them up and take them over into the wilderness. Yeah, we'll get... No, it's not. Why do I know that? Because God is miraculously going to do this work. How do I know that? Because it takes us in the scriptures to, to support it, which takes us back into Exodus. If you remember in Exodus, Exodus gives us very clear sh a showing of what eagles wings. Go back in Exodus 19.4 and Deuteronomy 32.11. It speaks of him using that same words about lifting them up on eagles wings. He talks about that in the Old Testament. He's just now referencing that same symbolism of God is going to lift him up and move him, get him out of there. It means of God's protection and God's deliverance and guidance to get him out into the wilderness. Where's that wilderness? I Again, I think it's the Jordan, Jordan area, it's, it's the mountains there. Why? Because I look at the map. Very simple. Someone asked me this question. I look at the map. If you look, if you look uh, west, you're going to the Mediterranean. There's no mountains there. If you go south, you're going to the desert. There's no mountains there. If you're going east, you're going right into the mouths of the enemy who's coming down from the north. They're going to take them to the east. The east is where? Jordan. There's mountains there. There's Petra. Do your own studies. I'm a practical kind of guy. I say he's going to take them east. And he's going to protect them in the wilderness for three and a half years. He's going to miraculously provide for them because they have nothing to their name. Why? He says, at the ones at the rooftop, get out of there. You're out in the field. Don't go back to your house and get your little purse and go get your laptops and go get your cell phones. You don't have it. You don't need it. Get going. 
I'll take care of you. You're not going to have satellite anyway. And he will nourish them. As we see in the 70th week of Daniel, God uses the 1,260-day term period, which is three and a half years. It is the same as 42 months, which is 30 Jewish calendar month, which makes up the 1,260 days. God's going to provide, protect, and guide during that period of tribulation. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened the, its mouth and swallowed up the, the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And that's a very interesting picture here because the wrath poured out against Israel after the abomination of desolation, when Satan walks into the, the, the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple and decimates there, it is going to be an abomination. And when that happens, again, this is that 70th, that halfway point of the 70th week of Daniel that even Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, spoke of the fact that this was going to happen. And when that happens, the serpent is going to be so upset. He's going to almost like, as the scripture says, like a flood. It's not a flood, but like a flood. The persecution will be flooded upon his people. It's going to come out of his mouth. That means he's going to give orders to all those, those leaders of ten nations. He's going to, all the, his, his, his people who support him. It's just going to be, find the Jews, find the believers, kill them, do whatever you can do. Get them. It's going to be like a flood. But notice this, the earth somehow opened, helps the, the nation of Israel, the woman, and, 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 and earth opens in its mouth and, and swallowed, up by the, uh, 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 swallowed up the flood. Meaning whatever happens, God is going to deal with this miraculously. I don't know how, I just know that God is going to do this. Isaiah 59, 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood... The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I just go based on that scripture alone that God is miraculously going to protect the nation of Israel and believers in that time. And lastly, verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is the offspring of the nation of Israel? Well, let me give you my thoughts on what I believe this is. We know the woman is Israel, so it has to be an offspring of the Israel. I, it can be the great... Um, the great multitude that we know of, which is the martyrs that we read about and studied in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Some people have that view. I believe the offspring of the nation of Israel that they're going to come against is the 144,000 male Jewish witnesses that are still evangelizing the world and they're going to come after them. That's who I more lean towards. 
Why? Because the great multitude is in heaven if they died. And if they didn't die, they're still on this earth. So yes, they can come against the great multitude who got saved during the seven period and is still alive. Yes, I believe that's going to be part of it too. So I, I take the view both. You could take one or the other. It's up to you. Understand, last point, we're going to communion. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. And their existence and survival are signs of a faithful God. A faithfulness of the word and the truthfulness of the fulfillment of his prophetic word. Why do we study the word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book? Because his word is faithful and truthful. We can bet our lives on the truth of God. And my prayer this coming, as we go into the, into the new year, you will be more in the word of God and pondering and spending time and meditating on it and knowing God more through his word than any time in your life walking with him. Amen?